Good morning, folks. Welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society. As always, I'd like to cover a couple safety precautions with you. Before listening, please lock your door, close your windows, cover your mirrors, and settle in. Maybe with a little tobacco, a little coffee. This one's going to have you up all night. Welcome back to the show, Mike. Thanks for having me on, Paz. I uh, really appreciated the opportunity to uh, get steep into American underworld history. And, you know, thanks for your audience for engaging with it and having a good time with it. And I'm happy to uh, kind of dig a little bit deeper, look at the underbelly of the underbelly. Yeah, and that's exactly what we're going to be doing here tonight. As promised, this is going to be where it gets really weird. You've all had your history lesson, but what's history without knowing how to apply it to our modern age, right? Absolutely. So, as a little bit of a refresher, why don't you remind the audience just where we left off here? So, when we left off, I had posited a theory, a theory of talent selection. And my theory of talent selection essentially holds that the system gets really good at identifying the violent, the high initiative, the smart, the lateral thinkers, guys that combine a bunch of these traits, the exact same traits that you would see in a Jesse James, in a Machine Gun Kelly, um, in a Larry Phillips Jr. And the system starts to really find them early and bring them into the fold, start to really mobilize them in certain key areas. Now, if you look at what kind of starts the decline and what you would think would create an oversupply of these types of individuals, right? It would be the Vietnam War. That seems like it checks out. Right. What else is kind of really, what else did they really hit the gas on at Vietnam? Oh, gosh. The first thing I'd be inclined to say is intelligence agency drug smuggling, but I don't think that's quite what you're fishing for here. That's that's not what I'm fishing for, but it's not not what I'm fishing for either. <laughs> you talked a little bit about how the American feds really had a desperado streak in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, out into the 90s. The answer I was looking for was the development of special operations forces. Now, this had been kind of nascent um, from World War One, World War Two, right? But in Vietnam is where you really start to see the feeder systems develop. You start to see multiple types of organizations within the military, within the the larger power structure, start to develop. Now, I'm going to derail us right away, but just for a moment here. I want to ask you purely a personal question, and I don't know how much you've thought about it. But do you think any part of that is a reactionary force? to, I believe it was uh, McNamara and his 100,000 draft initiative. Like, do you think that sort of emphasis on special operators and people who could go above and beyond the structure they're initially given was some sort of, uh, like I said earlier, a reactionary force to the fact that they had so many, you know, I this is going to sound extremely rude, but he was going out of his way to draft low IQ hicks, basically. So do you think this was some sort of reaction to that, trying to get operators in the field who could operate independently as opposed to having a sergeant sitting on them 24-7 to tie their shoelaces? So it's kind of two things, right? Uh, Number one is you have the role of the American military changing from really a a sledgehammer that takes a long time to be mobilized um, and then takes big swings at enemy societies and enemy formations and into a military that's more focused on the management of imperial politics, right, on being a kind of international police force. Um, So I, I think it is a reaction in light of doctrine, if that makes sense. And I was not trying to dodge, not trying to triangulate my answer. Oh, no, I think that makes perfect sense. And like I said, I put you a little bit on the spot with that. That was a curveball we didn't discuss, but I thought it was interesting. And I think your answer sums it up uh, very appropriately. So thank you for bearing with me there. Oh, no problem. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about about Vietnam. MARSOC, the Navy SEALs, really it becomes, you know, in addition to things like Quezon, you have these small groups of independent operators 
um, really putting in the work, right? You have these are the guys going out and doing long distance reconnaissance in on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, arms interdiction, smuggling interdiction. Meanwhile, they're starting to map these networks, right? They're starting to map these smuggling networks. So the feds are are really starting to see that there are that there's just quite simply a lot of capability in the American public, right? A lot of these guys are really, really dangerous. And if they come back and there's nothing to do with them, that might be a big problem for them, right? Absolutely. It's that sort of double-edged sword that every imperial setup has eventually. You know, If you train your soldiers and your mercenaries too well, eventually you have to set up a security state on top of your own military to protect the Imperium itself. Exactly. Now, you start to see things in the 1960s. LAPD is really where it starts. The development of SWAT teams, right? What is a SWAT team? A SWAT team is basically a quick reaction force within a larger policing organization. The police um, in America having the role of regulating the American underworld the SWAT teams being the guys who deal with the aberrations, right? These are the are the smarter, the more ruthless, the the gun guys, the nutcases, um, the crazies, right, within the police department, the guys that like to get into shootouts, the guys that would describe a shootout as the best day of their career, not the worst day of their career. You know, we read a little bit um, in the last episode about the guys at Norco that were scared, right? They were saying that this was the worst day of their lives. They were happy to survive it. Um, you know, really thankful to have had those heavy weapons available to them, even in limited numbers, right? So LAPD SWAT is really formed out of a couple couple elements. Number one, the race riots. Number two, the availability of highly trained, highly motivated, uh, highly skilled operators. Number three, the SLA um, in their kind of last ditch shootout that they ran. So what, when it really starts to go haywire, right. And when you start to really hear this theme in, in libertarian politics of the militarization of police, um, is in the eighties and the nineties in the drug war. And this is when you have the era of the desperado feds kind of meeting head on with the end of traditional American criminality and the move kind of away from your you know neighborhood tough guys running the rackets to true international criminals right um, sure and you know we all know exactly who those guys are exactly. if you folks haven't read Roger Stone's books uh please do i'm not going to say any more right now <laughs> so, so there's an interesting nexus here that i'm going to push on a little bit paz what do you know about the school of the americas you know that's a name that seems familiar to me but if you could please refresh me. So the School of the Americas is basically the the school where if you're a friendly Latin American or South American, South American uh, repressive state or repressive state in the making, you're allied with the interests of American capital. This is where you send your goons to become almost as good as our goons, right? Oh, that's right. Yep. So these guys are kind of the nexus of where international criminality and the kind of nascent talent selection of the, you know, the smart and the violent kind of sit, right? Because guess where School of the Americas is? Fort Benning. What else is in Fort Benning? Quite a good percentage of U.S. Special Operations Command, with the one exception being, you know, the Navy SEALs out of Coronado, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Interesting how that works, isn't it? Now, I, yeah, I think interesting is the perfect word for that. Almost feels like a scarlet thread a person could tug on, see what unravels from there. Exactly. Now, I'm not going to sit here and, and lie to your audience or waste, their, or waste their time and say that I've formed a coherent theory. But it is just a little funny to me how all of these things start to kind of coalesce, right? And they start to... There starts to be little nodes where American criminality and imperial management start to intersect, right? Absolutely. And, you know, to your point, to address what you just said there, I don't think you'd be doing our audience a disservice at all 
That's exactly what they tune into this for. The very nature of conspiracy theory itself precludes a lot of formal argumentation because you're not ceded the right to make a formal argument by the people who will oppose your thoughts. So instead, the most important skills in conspiracy theory, of course, are making sure you have your sources lined up and your ducks in a row. And then being able to, of course, emphasize the pattern recognition portions, which is exactly what we're doing here by pointing out the fact that, oh, hey, the state security gun thugs of everywhere else just always seem to be in the same place as American special forces are. And yet they're not ever really shooting at each other. I wonder what's going on. (laughs) Funny how that works. So let's talk about another phenomenon. And that's the phenomenon uh, of the private privatization of the American military. Now, this is all going on concurrently as the American military is getting more specialized. You're moving truly towards an all-volunteer military um, in, in the truest sense of the word, right? Nobody is in the Army after probably 1985 who doesn't want to be there. Um, you know, the era of go to jail or go to the Marines, that's over largely. I mean, I'm sure somebody can find an exception, but you know, again, I, I'm a trends and forces guy, right? Yeah. There's the sort of situation where you might get chased out of your hick town or something, but it's not happening on a scale where any drifter ends up in this man's army anymore. Exactly. So what do you start to find? You start to find a bunch of little conflicts break out towards the end of of the well cold war never really ended but that that's another episode for another podcast <laughs> right. um, towards the end of the cold war you start to see the military draw down and it as ratio it gets much more specialized the role of imperial policing is really taking off um, you know, U.S. troop commitments really don't go down anywhere with the exception of Western Europe in the 90s, in the late 80s, uh, in the early 2000s. You, if anything, you start to see more countries with less boots on the ground. But what you also see is the rise of the outsourcing of certain formerly key functions of the military to contractors, your triple canopies, your Kellogg Brown and Root, um, the most notorious of which being Blackwater, who... Formed from a rich kid Navy SEAL washout. That's a really uncharitable description of Eric Prince, who's one of the more interesting figures uh, of the American global war on terror, in my opinion. I think that that guy is an absolutely fascinating individual. And as I feel about most Imperial power players, I think he's a literal demon. But that doesn't make the study of him any less interesting, especially what he's doing with his new organization. What's the name of it? Frontier Services Group or something? Yeah, those guys are uh, really something else. And the sort of shenanigans that guy's up to are crazy. You know, I know I'm on a tangent here now, but Eric Prince has not gone away. He has not stopped doing exactly what he does just because he folded up Blackwater. And for people who want to stay plugged into what's really going on, uh, keep a finger on his pulse, I guess is what I'll say here. So around this time is when you start to see, you know, engagements like Somalia, right? And Somalia is kind of the the, the larger Black Hawk down, um, you know, zeitgeist around it is really when you start to see American special forces kind of step into the limelight as um, a core plank of American power projection, right? Where heretofore it had been the Minuteman missiles, the nuclear submarines, um, tank divisions, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, So while the Black Hawk Down mission is, is in many ways a disaster, it's also a public relations victory. Um. So this is when this is when it really hits the gas, right? You start to see the growth of the SEAL teams. Um, you start to see the growth of the number of Green Berets. Um, the selection kind of reaches down another level, right? Um, they take kind of one qualification, one qualification standard deviation off the board in order to bulk up these numbers for a nascent Imperial mission. And so my theory, again, I I have nothing to substantiate this, is that a lot of the guys who 
probably would have been attracted to, you know, the idea of walking into a bank holding an AK-47 are now able to, you know, pretty much do just just that. But now on our side. Yeah, our, they get to put airport. on a green beret and a flag patch instead. Exactly. Now, what you also have in policing is, you know, the drug squads, the SWAT teams, right? Um, your plainclothes anti-crime, plainclothes anti-gun. Um, guys really out there doing some cowboy shit, playing cops and robbers, right? Absolutely. Uh, but for real, you know, this is also when you start to see the the era of all the cops have to come home, right? Uh, right. Getting shot in the line of duty is no longer an accepted risk. It's something that we need to arrange policy, arrange use of force around. So just a lot of really kind of big changes in the nature of American military and American policing that I think are a demand side factor on the types of guys who are attracted to high incident, high incident banditry. Right. Um, I'm sure some of them ended up as computer hackers. Other of them ended up on wall street, hedge funds, VC, right. Uh, the truly great robbers of our day and age. Absolutely. And that's the sort of deal, right? Where you're talking about just how many SDs can you go down in your selection but to your point, that's where the top end of the bell curve was always ending up. You know, the personality type is fixed, but the IQ distribution more or less determines whether you're doing it with a gun or with a uh, cell sheet, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So one thing that we got into a little bit, especially with the Old West and the, uh, the Prohibition era motor bandits, is kind of the role of the media in really supercharging this phenomenon in kind of create the supply of it, creating its own demand. Um, tell me you, this is more your beat than mine. Why would the media be wanting to do this? Why would the media be wanting to valorize high incident bandits, the types of guys, your machine gun Kelly's, yeah, well, the more innocent answer, of course, is the old trope of if it bleeds, it leads. You know, you can guarantee you're going to get outrage sales, and these days, outrage clicks, and you're going to be able to sell a newspaper to a concerned housewife or the occasional teenager who's looking for a cheap thrill in print. But if you want to get more sinister, as I always do on my own program here, I would also point out you have things like Operation Mockingbird and the MK Ultra regime that exists in the federal government today, where there's a deliberate terrorization of the American public to lower morale and enforce compliance. So I would suppose that depending on just where your stories come from, there's a very good case to be made that this stuff's getting played up on purpose to make the world look a lot more horrifying than it is and to intentionally lionize the gun thugs of the state apparatus. I want to take that bait. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you another question. Okay, let's hear it. So why is it that you still see movies about bank robberies, even after it was gone. You have things like The Town. Um, you have, obviously, Michael Mann's classic Heat, um, which being really at, at the kind of last burning out of it. Um, why do you have it kind of having this outsized presence? Um, even, you know, you watch a regular police procedural, whatever they're called, um, ATF, no, FBI, right? Squat, uh, Chicago PD, yeah. even the shield and stuff back in the day. Yeah. Just justified being another example. Oh. We, 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 you and I are innocent you know, for this conversation. We can't drag them into the mud with this. No, no, no. I, I don't mean to, but, story. Bank, <laughs> but there, there's a couple good bank robberies in that one too, right? Oh yeah, there absolutely is. Uh, to address your point, I would say, that if you wanted the innocent explanation, you'd say that it is just such a touchstone of the American culture, even to this day, that where it doesn't need to be immediately in the zeitgeist to be immediately memorable as part of the American cultural character. But 
again, as I prefer more sinister explanations, I would say that by making sure these things stay present in the media, you're able to churn the talent pool a little bit. You know, you see who's into that. You keep that sort of stuff fresh so people are thinking about it. And if people are thinking about it, certain people will in turn be compelled or feel compelled to either act upon it, whether that's doing the act themselves or wanting to get involved in stopping it. You know, it makes the talent with sufficiently low impulse control rise to the top and reveal itself by keeping it present in the media and therefore in their forebrain. I like that because we had talked about um, a good part of the kind of lower IQ elements, the support elements um, within the American underclass really being nailed to the floor, um, you know, with things like opiates, with, with things like mandatory minimum sentencing, um, with things like, you know, mandatory five years for getting caught with a gun. Um, so or even I, the explosion and stuff like SSRI subscriptions, you know, sure. or prescriptions rather. Sure. Um, so I, I think that, you know, again, it, it's part of a pincer movement, right? Um, the system is incompetent in a lot of ways, but in terms of affecting behavior using a wide variety of tools, I, I think it really can't be argued that they're not pretty good at it. Yeah, you know, and that's exactly why I keep using the term MK Ultra regime and why I've been leaning into that so hard in recent months, because it's come to my attention that maybe people don't exactly get the point of what I'm trying to make with that. It's not about them doing literal mind control rays at you. It's the complete capture of the media, along with sufficiently advanced drug testing, along with society-wide social conditioning that allows them to know exactly what response they'll get by pressing their input buttons through soft power influence networks. All right. You said it again, so let's go to... uh... Let's go to what a lot of people would, uh, let's go to a, a phenomenon that we talked about in the last episode that a lot of people would point to as evidence of MKUltra. I want to talk a little bit more about Patty Hearst. So Patty Hearst did actually go to jail. She was later pardoned, um, as we said in the last episode, and she described um, a lot of brainwashing, right, um, that she had been essentially starved. Um, she had been, um, starved, sexually abused, right? Um, mm-hmm. said right here, I spent 15 hours going over my experiences with Robert J. Lifton of Yale University, author, author of several books on coercive persuasion. And he pronounced me a classic case, which meant, which met all the psychological criteria of a coerced prisoner of war. If I had reacted differently, that would have been suspect, she said. Um, now. Her first lawyer, Terrence Hellinan, advised Hearst not to talk to anybody, including psychiatrists. Um, He was advocating that she use a defensive involuntary intoxication, um, that the SLA had given her drugs, um, which had affected her judgment. Now, F. Lee Bailey, again, famous swamp creature. Funny how that works. Yes, Um, yes it is. uh, Who's her second attorney? So he asserted a defensive coercion of duress of uh, all of that affecting her intent. Um, why would he do that? This, this is going to be one for you. Why would F. Lee Bailey, of all people, do that? And not just because Patty Hearst was a rich guy's daughter. Well, there's probably a few different tacks you might take with something like that. Uh, The more Illuminati-brained conspiracy theorists would say that it's the sort of revelation of the method that they're demanded to do, you know, required to do whenever they're up to these sort of shenanigans. Uh, The other little more reasonable classes of people might say that this is a warning, you know, this is a proof of concept rollout using Patty Hearst as the pawn to show, look what we can do or look what our methods are capable of if they're deployed the right way. Or, you know, even there's also a case to be made, I think, 
And, you know, this is the least likely in my mind that he does think that that's just the legitimate defense because he had some inside awareness that these methods were effectual. Interesting. So let's jump to Patty Hearst being commuted. So Jimmy Carter, of course, commuted Hearst federal sentence to 22 months, the time she had served. Um, eight months before her eligibility for parole, uh, she apparently was given her full civil rights back by Bill Clinton on his last day in office. And guess who Patty Hearst ends up marrying? Jimmy. I'm not even sure. I can't say. One of the cops on her security detail. Really? <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. So, now I'm going to be the one who jumps on the crazy part of it here, and I'm just going to throw this out here. What are the odds that that's like sort of a direct handler situation, and they're worried about a reactivation of an asset? I know that's a little wooey, a little crazy, but that's the sort of stuff I indulge in quite a bit. Is there room for something like that? I, I got to be honest with you, man. I, I have no idea. It, it could just be a coincidence. It, it could be a, a case of, of Stockholm Syndrome. Patty Hearst I mean, has, has shown, as we said before, that this is a girl who had seduced her math teacher while she was in high school. She she liked men in a position of authority over her. She demonstrated that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mean to. I don't mean to slander her, right? But th- there's really just a lot of wild shit going on with this one. Sure. Sure. And I suppose the uh, other, well, never mind. I lost my train of thought there. Carry on. It's just, you know, the more you look at this, um, the more that you look at, at the case of Patty Hearst, at the case of, of the SLA, at the case, at the various cases of your, your left wing kind of militant groups really getting really into bank robbing um, where it had heretofore been the, the province of, of professional criminals, right. Of, of real, you know, real leading edge guys. It, it really makes a, a guy like me wonder why that happens. And, you know, we, we started to talk about it a little bit and unfortunately or unfortunately, I'm further now from an answer than I was when we started talking last time. Well, I haven't chewed on it a little bit. You think about how institutional powers always has a sort of leftward drift, and that's been observable through literally all of human history, even as the idea of what comprises a political leftist has shifted. It's without a doubt that institutional power and clout and influence has always drifted left. So you almost wonder if this doesn't become the sort of deal where left-wing groups were more inclined to try it because they had an implicit understanding that they were more likely to get away with it, not necessarily because they had direct patronage to do these things. I think that may have happened in some cases, but it should never be a default assumption. So you have this sort of phenomena, right? where you know that it's becoming safer for your team to try and do this sort of thing, because you know, there's going to be just enough of an undercurrent of sympathy, both from power and from the public due to your institutional soft influence in the culture to be more likely to get away with it. You know, while it was becoming out and out more dangerous for career criminals and crazy people taking a long shot at a payday, these sort of political acts especially when presented as political acts from explicitly these groups did actually become safer, not necessarily in the actual event outcomes, but in that it was something that they were more able to attempt and consider because they knew that there might be more covering fire from the press, even if they still had to actually risk getting their hide shot up. You know, if they came through, they'd be treated way different. That, that actually squares a, a lot with what actually happened in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and you look at the above-ground support networks of, of groups like the Weather Underground, um, the Black Liberation Army, um, 
and those I forget what their exact name was the the group of lunatics in, in New England who were pulling some of the same stuff um, in that they were they did have this outside support um, Tom Wolf famously coined the term radical chic when talking about one of these parties that was raising money for um, Weathermen, Black Liberation or uh, Black Liberation Army, and various other groups in in New York City. Um, so, speaking of, of prominent politicians and, and their involvement in in these types of crimes and their involvement in these types of networks, um, we posited or we kind of skirted around the phenomenon of man by the name of Leland E. California power broker. 2014, Leland Yee was indicted by the FBI for arms trafficking. And this is after years and years and years and years of Brady campaign A ratings uh, for his support working for gun control. Leland Yee associated with arms smuggling uh, through the Philippines of Norinco and various other um, of the famous Chinese arsenals, AKs landing over here. Um, allegations of even surface-to-air missiles. I, I haven't seen anything that proves the surface-to-air missiles, but I, I, I've seen the indictments uh, for him of bringing machine guns in. Mm-hmm. What kind of AKs were the North Hollywood guys using? Norinco. Huh. Funny how that works, isn't well, it? Well, I'll be. <laughs> <laughs> So now, again, I I don't think that the North Hollywood guys were being actively run uh, by any types of assets. My personal theory on North Hollywood is that elements of the LAPD, elements of the local FBI um, were turning a blind eye to who they had known as the high incident bandits. We we talked about the various levels of incompetence and the various... The various intersection points where they were seemingly unable to put the threads together of these two distinctive guys um, running around armed to the teeth in homemade suits of armor, knocking off banks and armored cars, right? So I would posit that part of the reason why they were ignored um, is because it was a logical consequence that they were on the end of the uh, they were on the end of the armed smuggling networks, which were being run by Leland Yee and a gangster by the name of Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow, who's a, another absolutely fascinating figure in uh, the history of American crime. Um, I don't know enough about it, but it, it would be very interesting to do uh, a long-form exploration of of the various types of Asian Asian criminal organizations, the ha- the Tongs, the Triads. Yeah, I think it would be too eventually, but I think this is a point where we can talk about another dynamic that I want to harp on just a little bit, right? We've been talking about talent selection here and being able to get these sort of people in service to the state as opposed to against the state. And I just want to bring this up as something for the audience to chew on and maybe for you to chew on too, though I'm sure it's occurred to you before. When you think about the way the American government is set up both nominally and how it's operated in practice, you'll realize that despite what the Q boomers might think, it is extremely difficult for politicians to act on the military and to touch those levers of power for themselves. There is a lot of functional independence and a lot of norms and mores still in place to stop politicians from politically coercing the military into any sort of subservience or active compliance with whatever schemes they may be involved in. But it's a lot easier for federal and state politicians to touch their local police departments where and when they need to, or to find down-chain conspirators in these sort of organizations, where you're also seeing a rise in the number of available Uh, talent with that sort of operator mentality we've been talking about. And you almost wonder, and maybe I'll leave this as my own little teaser for people to chew on, you almost begin to wonder whether this is just selection pressures and evolution in action, 
or if someone didn't have a real clever idea to think that this is a way they can get talent in their pocket on the cheap, as opposed to having to use the mafia middlemen that were so common through most of the 20th century. I'm going to get into this with future guests and bring this up, but there was a long period in American history where politicians wanted dirty work done. They need to be able to go and find a personal trigger man for themselves and hand that trigger man various sinecures to keep them compensated or that they would directly go to organized crime figures and say, Hey, I need a shooter for this. And of course they never write it down. They never have the conversation on the phone, but there's plenty of proof that it happens because we can look at the Kennedy family and see direct proof of it. But then as I'm saying, you get into this sort of thing where now all of a sudden you've got SWAT teams You've got federal enforcement agencies that are non-military with these sort of skill sets available where you can lean on a bureaucrat a lot easier, or you can lean on a Metro police chief to say, hey, get me a meeting with your three, four bad apples because I need something done. And while, of course, like I said, there's no receipts for this sort of stuff, but it's a really nice way to get this talent, like I said, working for people with the Machiavellian schemes. It's a way to horseshoe the two ends of the criminality bell curve. So you know what else you have that happens after Vietnam? You have a ton of military equipment. And you have these police departments that are crying out for hardware that are feeling undergunned, right? Again, we we talked about up until probably relatively recently, and you still even can today. What you can't do today is get away with it. You can quite easily get you and your couple of friends and and outgun the local police at least temporarily right yeah now after vietnam is when you start during and after vietnam is when you start to see the pushback that's when you start to see these programs um particularly through the war on drugs but also independent of the war on drugs to start to give military hardware to the local police to start to find jobs for these shooters right so it is both carrot and stick, right? It It is happening, as we've been saying, the above-the-ground stuff that's going on uh, is relating to the kind of American criminal underworld in a lot of really interesting ways. They're, they're dancing both with, around, uh, with and around one another, right? Um, the, the cocaine cowboys uh, with a narco tank in 79 um, at the Dadeland Mall um, – that precipitates the arming up and the gunning up of the Miami police department, the drop in recruiting standards in the Miami police department. Right. Um, so, so these things are both simultaneously a, a race to the bottom and a virtuous circle, depending on your perspective. Um, it, it all kind of comes together in a lot of really interesting ways. Such as, well, you know, again, like just look at the way it, it seems to be a type of or is that symbiosis, right? Between mm-hmm. between the American criminal networks and the people who are put in are put in place to manage them, to administrate them. Um, again, I, I've said that I've said this theory in Plate Company before that police and criminals. What no, what nobody on either side of the law wants to talk about is that they are inherently selecting for different expressions of the same types of traits, different expressions of the same character dynamics, of the same personality types. Not, not that I'm a big believer in personality types, despite being a management guy. Um, <laughs> but there, there just is that ability and willingness and, and desire to impose oneself that kind of sits on both sides of the law. Like you said, the horseshoe theory of criminality. Yeah. And I don't think anyone here in this audience, I think most of them are pretty woke to that idea. I guess I can't say that for a fact, but that's something that's uh, been talked about in the sort of libertarian circles that I'm in for a long, long time now. And I'm glad that it's also there in other audiences too. I believe you have some libertarian sympathies, but without getting into it, I don't think you'd particularly characterize yourself that way. No, I, I definitely have some libertarian sympathies, but uh, you know, my, my kind of time in the corporate world has lead me to 
really take a little bit more of a Machiavellian perspective of my own. I'll, I'll leave it there. Sure. Uh, of course, like I said, we don't need to get into it, but one thing that, that you talked about, um, that I didn't take the bait on, but I, I thought it was really interesting. Uh, and these are two of my favorite, you know, kind of just American characters, right. And that, that being Butch and Sundance um, and how they were kind of the, the last of the good outlaws, right. Mm-hmm. The last of the guys who were robbing from the rich, given to the poor, not that they were really doing that unless you count the, you know, the girls working the saloons and the bartenders as the poor, which they are, but you know, that's not what we mean when we say rob from the rich and give to the poor. Right. 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 We're talking about virtuous beggars who all of a sudden receive $100 coin drops from someone who just wants to see him get in a new house and off the street. And that's something that's never actually really happened with any of these stories. You know, Robin Hood's a fictitious trope to do cover for political actors, mostly. Exactly. So you had posited a theory that that Butch and Sundance weren't weren't what they seemed. That they weren't just you know a couple of couple of frontier toughs with no real no real other prospects, but with some real skills, right? Yeah. Let's go into that for a little bit. Well, so this is something I just like to throw at people to get them off foot and make them think a little bit. The theory itself actually belongs to a. You know, I'm sure he'd resent the term conspiracy theorist, but a a retired spook himself named Walter Bosley, who I actually have quite a bit of respect for. And he's written a series of books about the esoteric underpinnings of some really interesting historical figures. You know, among others, he's uh, talked about Napoleon, some of the great American writers of the 19th century, and just what was going on behind their writings. But he also had a section of one of his works about Butch and Sundance. And I have not made myself familiar enough with their careers personally to know whether these are valid accusations or not. But he stakes his thesis on them around the fact that you didn't actually see either of them in too many gunfights relative to what was happening with many other payroll train robbers right Mm -hmm. and you never really saw them around the money either and that whether by poor luck or some other mechanism it seemed like law enforcement had a lot easier time following them or knowing where they were at than some of these other operating gangs and these theories led this gentleman bosley to the conclusion oh perhaps that they were acting as informants or as some sort of other inside operative to help the marshals and the secret service who did so much of that money law enforcement at the time, keep track of what was going on in these scenarios or in that sort of scene. There's a, there's another, I, I guess I didn't give you enough of an opening for this, uh, but who was really looking for these guys, right? Was the Pinkertons. And, mm. and we've talked, I know I've said it a lot, right? About how, uh, you know, supply and demand that, that the American underworld is really part of business, right? It, it cannot be separated. Uh, they work simultaneously for and against one another. Uh, I would posit that it would be more likely that it would have been the Pinkertons, right? Um, using guys like Tom Horn and, you know, again, talent selection, right? right. Tom Horn is an absolutely, um, absolutely emblematic of the type of guy that didn't really care which side of the law he was working on. Um, Tom Horn, a long history as a Pinkerton and was, uh, was actually one of few, few gun thugs, corporate gun thugs that was hanged for his actions in a range war. Um, so I have no doubt. It was no doubt. It was well-deserved. Oh yeah. Real, real bad actor. Right. Um, but just interesting how these things work, right? How 
when you start to really pull on that thread, you start to see that the top and the bottom, if you will, are, are really connected more so than anybody would ever like to admit that, that they are not always working at cross purposes. Yeah, no, they're absolutely not. And as often as not, especially if we're talking about this sort of range war era, really, you didn't sort out who was the law enforcement and who was the criminal until the papers had declared a winner. You know, they were swapping sheriffs and deputies badges constantly on and off. Exactly. You know, who was the law and who wasn't was basically determined after the fact. And that really illustrates what we've been saying this whole time about two sides of the same coin. Uh, the exact same type of person that does one absolutely does the other. And that this should say things about other people who are looking for these types of individuals and the sort of places they will look. Now, the reason this has ramped up over time, among other reasons, is, of course, availability of information from the Panopticon on different individuals. But just because the surveillance state didn't exist in the 19th century doesn't mean that there weren't ways of finding out about, hey, that ranch hand spent some time with these raiders, or hey, that sheriff wasn't always a sheriff. Did you hear about what he did up in the Utah Territory? 100%. You know, it was harder to recruit these people because there was a lot more word of mouth involved, but it absolutely was still going on. This dynamic has existed forever. You know, this dynamic is the same exact reason why there were warrior kings appointing their lieutenants dukes in the medieval ages. 100%. So, Paz... I'm pretty good here. Um, I think we've given your audience a a lot of food for thought. Um, Is there anything that you feel that we haven't covered any, any of these incidents um, that, that we feel need to be discussed in in a little bit more detail? Um, Any of the personalities we've talked about, um, do you feel um, are worthy of more examination? I I have a little bit more time, but I don't want to, uh, run kind of past the quality, right? Right. I understand what you're saying. I think that in general, um, as I said, while I was doing the advertising tweet for part one, this is exactly the sort of layout I'm looking for on my show. You gave me an excellent show talking about the history of these events and really setting up examples. And tonight here, we've gotten deep into the theory about how and why this is happening how and why this will continue to happen, why we need to be aware of it, and what it means about behind the scenes for how power functions. And I think that we've said what we need to say on the topic, unless you've got any closing thoughts, unless you've got any real wild curveballs you want to throw around, because I'm always open to that sort of thing. But I think we covered our bases by and large here tonight. Well, first, I want to say thank you to you for having me on. Uh, second, I want to say thank you for your audience. Um, I had some fun interactions with some of your audience members about this. Uh, and third, I, I just want to remind um, remind your audience and, and the people at large that don't stop digging um, just because you find the first thing that, that confirms your biases. You're, you're going to often... You know, the human mind is incredibly powerful at, at pattern recognition, but it's also incredibly powerful at convincing itself that things that you think fit the pattern don't. I talked about the one thing that I, I was convinced um, was proof of my theory, which was the, the kind of IRA gun running, bank, bank and armored car robbing, uh, bombing psychopaths that were dominating the Boston underworld from the seventies to the nineties, but it really didn't. That's really more of a story of institutional rot, um, which I would, you know, again, that's really what I wanted to put out there um, for a kind of another look at at the history and the meaning um, and the deeper currents of the American underworld. So if you're up for that, I'd like to come back. Yeah, I absolutely will be having you back to cover some more of that. Uh, If you're open to it, I think you're going to end up being my number one correspondent for a lot of these underworld connections. Maybe not every single one of them, but you've been rock solid on the topic. I said it last time. You're really an excellent guest here. 
And uh, if I can throw in one last warning for my audience then here before we actually wrap, I'd say that just because we're talking about institutional rot tonight, and we've talked a lot about how environmental factors and natural selection processes influence these things, that doesn't mean that there's not a literal criminal conspiracy at the center of a lot of this stuff. Because this is just the Petri dish that those things exist in. You know, what we're describing here is the structure around all of these things, not a structure that creates the absence of these things. So think about that, folks. Now, Mike, do you have anything you want to explicitly plug or anything you want to promote before we get rolling here? Nope. Very Thank good. You, Would you like to even plug your Twitter account? Don't feel obligated, but... Yeah, I'm not Mr. I am uh, Mr. Mike Roach 35 on Twitter. Uh, follow me, yell at me, it, interact with me, or don't. If you didn't like what I did, you can tell <laughs> me that, or, or you can keep it to yourself either way. But uh, thank you again, Paz. I really appreciated the opportunity. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Folks, you know where to find me. You know I'm always looking for feedback about this. So uh, I'll be waiting to hear from you. Good night.